Morning, Bethel. It's our scripture reading this morning is Romans 4, verses 1 to 8. If you're using the Pew Bible, that's on page 941. So Romans 4, verses 1 to 8, page 941 in the Pew Bible. Please stand with me for the reading of the word. This is the word of God, starting in verse 1 of Romans 4. What then shall we, shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Amen. It's good news. You may have a seat. Morning, brothers and sisters. Good to see you all here this morning. So um, we are in the middle of this Sola series in the month of October. Um, and we're taking one of the five solas from the Reformation, one each week, the five hallmarks of the Reformation, Protestant Reformation, this being the 500th anniversary of that um, massive movement of God in the 1500s. So these things are not just historical curiosities. They are actually a really helpful summary of our faith. So sola scriptura is the first one. Um, we look to Scripture alone for our authority, for God's truth, for life and godliness, and um, to lead us to salvation. Sola gratia, last week Tyler preached from Ephesians 2, um, that justification, that right standing with God is only by grace alone, and then this week by faith alone, through faith alone, sola fide. Next week we're going to look at solus Christus, so it only comes through Christ, and then all of this is God's work. And so it's sola de gloria, um, to the glory of God alone. So these are central to our faith, and um, we want to grow in our understanding, our grasp of these things, so that we can faithfully pass them on to future generations, so that we also can hold firmly to them and guard the good deposit. Um, But also, they are good for our souls. Good doctrine, healthy doctrine, produces healthy, fruitful living as well and guards us from error for being um, led astray. So justification by faith alone. Faith alone is our focus this morning. So I imagine most of you probably believe in justification by faith alone. Are you really clear on it? Do you think you can articulate it to someone? Um, you know, neighbor across the, the, the fence asks you, you know, what is this all about? Would you be able to articulate what it means? one question, and that's important, but maybe even underneath that is how important is it to you? How important is justification by faith alone to you? Luther actually said that the church stands or falls on this issue. That's how important he saw it to be. Does that resonate with you? Do you know how important it is just deep down in your soul? You could ask how precious Is this doctrine to you? Do you actually experience it as a powerful reality in your daily life? Or is it just kind of like a dusty doctrine on the shelf or in a book? So we actually should see it as very practically important, very practically powerful on a daily basis. It is that. And hopefully if that's not clear or if we all need to grow in our clarity of how important it is. Hopefully that'll happen this morning um, before we're done, that we'll all grow in our understanding of it and that it would become more precious to us and more powerfully operative in our lives on a daily basis. So there's an outline in the bulletin. There's also um, slides here that can help you as we go along through this. But the first point is a quote. So where does this come from? 
Is it up there? A person is justified by works and not by faith alone. What do you think of that line? Do you agree with that? I mean, is that what you believe? <laughs> it's a little bit of a trick question, maybe. You know where that quote comes from? It does not come from official Roman Catholic doctrine. It comes from the Bible. Book of James, chapter 2, verse 24. So we actually better believe this, but we need to know what we're believing when we say we believe this. So why don't you start, actually, in James 2. If you're using that pew Bible, you can turn to page 1012, 1012, and find James 2. So before we get to Romans 4, let's look at James 2. Start in verse 14. Because oftentimes it can seem like these things are contradictory, which they're not. Um, they actually are complementary, but we need to understand that. James 2.14, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So the issue is that merely saying that you have faith is not the same as having real saving faith. So lip service faith is not real faith, it's fake. So James is asking, you and me, can fake faith or dead faith save you? Can an empty profession of faith save you? No. Look at verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So the demons believe things to be true about God. They believe there's one God. Does that save them? Well, if it did, there would be a bunch of demons on their way to heaven. So mere knowledge of facts is not real justifying faith. Look at verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works? Whoa. When he offered up his son Isaac on the altar, you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Wait a second. If that's what the Bible says, then why in the world are we taking any time to consider sola fide, by faith alone? Because it seems like it's not by faith alone. Sounds like sola fide isn't biblical. But wait. I need to understand what James is doing here in context. He's seeking to show, to demonstrate the folly of thinking that dead faith saves. So what he does is he gives an illustration, Isaac and the altar. When did that happen? Genesis, anybody? Chapter number? Close guess? 22, okay? So remember that number, okay? Genesis 22 is when Abraham offered Isaac on the altar demonstrating his faith. Now look at verses 22 and 23 again. You see, see, do you want to be shown? He's, he's demonstrating, he's showing us something here. You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now where does that quote come from? where the scripture was fulfilled, Abraham believed God. Where's that, where's that from? Genesis 15. 
Okay? So Abraham really was counted righteous in Genesis 15, but the fact that his faith was real and living was demonstrated in Genesis 22. Okay? So verse 24 then is the conclusion. You see that a person is justified by works, or we could say by faith that works, living faith. No one is saved, in what James is saying here, no one is saved or justified by faith alone. What he means by faith alone is dead faith, faith without any life in it, lip service faith. So again, we have to make sure we understand these passages in context. Otherwise, we'll think that these are contradictory rather than complementary. So James is wanting to make sure that there's no lip service faith, that people aren't thinking, well, it doesn't matter if there's no fruit. No, it really does because real faith works and it produces fruit. So sola fide does not mean, this is why we start with this, it does not mean that we're justified by lip service. It does not mean that we're justified by dead faith or fake faith or the kind of quote-unquote faith that the demons have, just mental assent to facts. Okay? Instead, point number two, we're justified by faith alone apart from works. So it's clear teaching of Scripture. Um, take a look at Galatians 2.16 um, at some point. Three times in the same verse, Paul makes it really clear that a person is not justified by works but through faith in Jesus Christ. Um, but let's turn to Romans chapter 3 and 4 and see this clearly laid out in Romans 3 and 4. So first, look at the end of chapter 3, verse 28. What does sola fide mean? Romans 3, 28 is a good summary of it. It's on page 941 if you're using the Pew Bible. What does sola fide mean? Romans 3.28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Faith alone. And Paul's not using faith here in the sense of, you know, lip service faith. He's talking about genuine faith. So Paul's fighting one battle. James is fighting another battle. They're back to back fighting two separate battles. Okay? For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law so sola fide means that we are justified. We're declared righteous in God's sight before him. It's courtroom language. By grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. So we'll look now at Romans 4, 1 to 8 to see that this is clearly what Paul is teaching us under the inspiration of God's Spirit. So look at chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, quoting Genesis 15 again, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So Abraham was not justified by works. In Genesis 15, God came to him, remember, and made this crazy, audacious promise. So Abraham is old and childless, and Sarai, his wife, is old, and she's barren. And God takes him outside and says, look at the stars and count them, if you can. Your offspring are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Crazy. But Abraham believed God. And it was credited, very important word, it was reckoned, it was counted as righteousness. So Abraham's hands were empty and he received a gracious promise. He didn't bring anything to the table. He did nothing to merit this gracious promise. He simply received it. He believed it. Look at verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, if you can work for your justification, it's not a gift. It's what you deserve. It's your due. 
and to the one who does not work, verse 5, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted, again, there's that counted word, reckoned as righteousness. So God justifies the ungodly. We don't have to become godly in order to be justified, in order to be, to be right with God. We receive the justifying grace of God as a free gift. So we are justified by faith apart from any of our own works, apart from works of the law. So listen to the way we stated in our doctrinal statement. This is a dense, um, rich statement, so just listen carefully how much is packed in here, but it's very clear what we believe about justification by faith alone. We believe that justification is a free act of righteous grace wherein God pardons and accepts repentant sinners by their faith in Christ apart from works. Faith is the sole instrument by which they as sinners are united to Christ whose perfect righteousness and substitutionary sacrifice for sins is alone the ground of their acceptance with God. This acceptance happens fully and permanently at the moment of justification. That's really sweet. That's really, really good news. So people have been writing poems and hymns about this for ages. How about Rock of Ages? Says it well. Remember that hymn? Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. That's Solus Christus. We'll look at that next week. But the next line says, Nothing in my hand I bring except sin, right? That's what we bring to the table. That's what we bring to the, equ the equ equation. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. It's good news. This is massively important to us. Um, Every day life important, so precious and important. Verse 5 in Romans 4, and to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And he quotes Psalm 32, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So note that counting language. This is why the language of imputation has always been so important to Protestants. Um, this is really where the distinction becomes very clear. So point number three in justification is righteousness, right standing with God. Is it imparted to us internally where we become righteous? Or is it imputed to us, reckoned to our account? You might be like, whoa, boy, these are really big words. And, but just keep tracking. It'll, it'll make sense. So listen to R.C. Sproul here. He writes, if any word was at the center of the firestorm of the Reformation controversy and remains central to the debate even in our day, it's imputation. Numerous meetings were held between Protestants and Roman Catholics to try to repair the schism that was, taken, that was taking place in the 16th century. Theologians from Rome met with the Reformers trying to resolve the difficulties and preserve the unity of the church. There was a longing for such unity on both sides. But the one concept that was always a sticking point, the idea that was so precious to the Protestants and such a stumbling block for the Roman Catholics was imputation. Our sins imputed to Jesus' account and his righteousness imputed to our account. So if the question is, how are we justified? How are we made right before God? The Roman Catholic view of justification is not that we are justified by works. Do you know that? We need to make sure we don't caricature our folks in the Roman Catholic Church. 
It's not fair to represent them falsely. So listen to Canon 1 from the Council of Trent, 1500s, which was clarifying what Roman Catholics believed in the wake of the Reformation. Listen, this is Roman Catholic doctrine. If anyone says that man may be justified before God by his own works without the grace of God through Jesus Christ, let him be anathema. Did you know that? That's what Roman Catholic doctrine says. If anyone says that man may be justified before God by his own works without the grace of God through Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, condemned. The Council of Trent went so far as to say that faith is the, they, they did a lot of Latin back then, okay? So I don't know Latin, but I can read at least here. So my kids probably uh, correct me on my pronunciation here. But the initium, the fundamentum, and the radix of justification. They said that faith was all three of those. In other words, the beginning, the foundation, and the root of justification was faith. That's Roman Catholic doctrine. That faith is a necessary condition for justification. That all sounds really similar, right, to what we believe. But the problem is that they don't believe that faith is a sufficient condition for justification. Necessary, but not sufficient. And this is a big deal. Here's where we begin to see the differences between Roman Catholic doctrine and Protestant views of justification. So Roman Catholic doctrine teaches that baptism is actually the instrumental cause of justification. So how do we lay hold of that righteousness, that grace that justifies us before God? We say by faith, empty hand of faith, right? They say the instrumental cause is baptism. So at baptism, in most cases, obviously infant baptism, original sin, like Tyler mentioned last week, is washed away, regeneration occurs, and righteousness is infused, imparted. So justifying grace is infused into the person at their baptism. They actually become just. So that justification can be lost if the person commits a mortal sin. I'm not going to go into all the details of that, mortal and venial sin, but mortal just means it's serious, okay? And, you know, there's lists and so forth on how to distinguish between mortal and venial sins. So faith, this is, again, what they believe. Faith is not necessarily lost, but justification is lost and must be regained through the sacrament of penance which includes contrition, confession, and acts of satisfaction. So in Roman Catholicism, you can lose and regain the state of justification or the state of grace, being in the state of grace. And we, we protest. <laughs> okay? We say, no, 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 justification is a forensic courtroom declaration of righteousness imputed to us at the first moment of true belief. It is a status before God that is based not on our performance, but on the completed performance of the Lord Jesus, the righteousness of Christ, to whom we are united by faith in union with Christ. So it's not a state of grace in the soul that we can gain and lose. It is a status before God that he declares over us. So Romans 4, 5 is so important here. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. This declaration, this status is given to ungodly people. His faith is counted, counted, reckoned as righteousness. So justification before God does not come from righteousness infused or imparted, but righteousness imputed, credited, reckoned to our account. So we are declared righteous, not made righteous in order to be justified. That's to confuse justification and sanctification. So in a sense, that's to say that we are justified, like Roman Catholics basically believe that we are justified by our sanctification rather than the other way around. And we'll consider that a bit more in a few minutes. But before we do, we need to make sure we see really clearly the scandal of the gospel. Again, this is such good news, but do you know how scandalous the gospel is? 
Romans 4 makes it really clear here. This is the fourth point on our outline. Romans 4, 5 says that God justifies the ungodly. That ought to offend our judicial sentiments, our sense of righteousness and wrongness in the world. God's got some explaining to do here. Flip back to Proverbs 17. Proverbs 17, Pew Bible, page 540. Proverbs 17, 15 says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. So if you have a judge who justifies a guilty criminal, pardons and says, you know, the gavel falls, not guilty, you know, wouldn't that be horrible? What if that person committed an atrocious crime against you and then the the judge just lets them off? Like, you would be, ugh. You'd be angry. Justice hasn't been served. There's a miscarriage of justice. This is abominable, right? Or, the other way, if someone righteous is actually condemned, no. Like, we say no. Like, have you ever heard these stories where someone was falsely accused and went to prison for 20 years, and then finally the truth comes out, someone investigates it further, and you're like, no, that's so wrong that this innocent person was condemned and was under this sentence for 20 years unjustly. Those things offend us. They offend our, our sense of right and wrong. How can you declare the wicked innocent or righteous? It's an abomination. It's a miscarriage of justice. Well, guess what? God is the judge of all the earth. Should he be impeached? Who wrote Psalm 32? David. What if you were Bathsheba's sister? And you read Psalm 32. Would you maybe be tempted to say, what if you were Uriah's brother? Or John Newton? a slave trader. Do you know how wicked and horrible that was? And then he gets converted and he sings Amazing Grace. Like, how in the world is he going to atone for those sins? Does he have any currency with which to pay for his sins? How in the world can guilty sinners like David or John Newton or me or you, how in the world, with the massive debt of sin that you and I owe? Like, let's just say, we flatter ourselves all the time. Like, what if you just sin once a day? Which is like, come on. How many days, like if you're like 30, how many days have you lived? And guess what? Every single sin is against an infinitely glorious God. So your sin is infinitely heinous. It's not a small thing. The weight of the debt that we owe, that we cannot pay, is massive. We can never make satisfaction for our sin. We can never atone for our sin. We can never pay off the debt of our sin. We deserve eternal debtor's prison. No appeals. If God is righteous, he can't let us off. He'd be a bad judge. It'd be a miscarriage of justice. In fact, it'd be an abomination, according to Proverbs 17, 15. So if God is going to pardon guilty cosmic criminals like you and me, he's going to need to demonstrate his righteousness in doing so. Well, that's exactly what he did 
in Romans 3, right before we got to Romans 4, is he explained his righteousness in justifying the ungodly. So look back at Romans 3, verses 21 to 26. And there's so much in here. This is like maybe the <laughs> most significant passage in all of the Bible, but we'll walk through it quickly and make sure we just at least see the main point. Romans 3, 21 to 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we are all in trouble. And so if there's no distinction, if we've all sinned, then the only hope is faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. We are justified, verse 24, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus to deliver us from our slavery to sin, the domain of darkness. Verse 25, whom God put forward, Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. So he's the one that took, absorbed the righteous judgment, condemnation, wrath of God in our place. God put forward Christ as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show, to demonstrate God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. How could he pass over David's sins? How could just the blood of bulls and goats cover that? It can't. So divine forbearance until that debt would finally be paid on the cross in full. It is finished. It was, verse 26, to show, to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that God can be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So all sin has to be paid for. The wages of sin is death, eternal death, hell. All your sins, all my sins have to be paid for. And there are two options. Nobody's getting away with anything. Either you pay, I pay, or Jesus pays. I mean, people all around us, this ought, to, this ought to just cause our hearts to break with pity and desire to share the gospel with these people around us because we see and we know that we're, we were prone to the same thing. We still are prone to the same thing. People all the time are trying to atone for their sins, plagued with a guilty conscience and trying to make up for it. People all the time trying to justify themselves. It's why we work so hard on our image. It's why we scramble and, and justify and rationalize whenever we get exposed and we make a mistake and, and we're shamed. It's why we blame shift. It's why we're spring-loaded to be critical and tear other people down to try to feel better ourselves because if God grades on the curve, then maybe I'm more likely to be okay if I'm better than. But we just can't do it. We cannot pay for our own sins. Hell is the only just payment for our sins. And God simply can't just forgive us, sweep it under the rug. He can't sacrifice his justice on the altar of mercy. That would be an abominable miscarriage of justice. But he is way too loving and way too merciful to get caught on the horns of that dilemma. So God demonstrates his love in that while we were still sinners, he sent Christ to die for us, the righteous for the unrighteous, to pay our debt for us, to take our condemnation for us. He pays the debt. That's all we give him. He gives us riches and mercy, riches of mercy. He takes the condemnation. We have, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He satisfies the justice of God. He satisfies the sweet mercy of God without violating the justice of God. So verse 26 in chapter 3, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That is glorious, scandalous grace. We're justified by nothing in us, nothing we've done. We're justified by being united to Christ by faith who did it all. He did it all. So it is finished 
is ours. That's for us. That's what justification by faith alone means, is that it is finished is yours. Simply, I mean, how? How do you obtain that? I can't. You alone can. I cling to you. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. <laughs> if you've been trying to justify yourself, you can, you can just drop all that pathetic, all those pathetic attempts of self-justification, just drop them on the ground like so much rubbish that they are and cling to Jesus and know his justifying grace. And you can be right with God right now, forevermore. Justification is not something you can lose, okay? If your faith is genuine, you cannot lose your justification. You're justified forevermore. Turn to Romans 8. It's stated negatively in verse 1. We sung it, which is great, so encouraging to sing that song. There, verse 1, 8-1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because we've been justified. So listen, folks, how often do we do this? We, are so, we need to see how practical this is, how we need to keep believing in justification by faith because we're so prone to wander and just believe lies. When you suffer, do, do you tend to sometimes Read that as the judgment of God, the punishment. Maybe I'm under his anger. Or how about when the Lord disciplines you, how do you read that? Do you wonder if, oh, I did something wrong, he must be punished? Wait a second. Jesus absorbed all the wrath of God in your place on the cross. It is finished. There's nothing left but love. Discipline, sure. But it's not because you're out of right relationship. It's because you're in right relationship and he loves you. And he's disciplining the one he loves. So we're not in and out and in and out. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me. No. We've been justified forevermore. So keep reading in Romans 8 down to verse 30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's the golden chain, like theologians call it. No genuine believer falls through the cracks. There's no cracks between predestination, calling, calling, justification, justification, glorification. Nobody falls through the cracks. You're justified forevermore. In fact, the glorification is so certain, it's put in the past tense. Look at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? How about, woohoo! If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? All the grace we need to keep us faithful to the end because we've already been justified forevermore. Now, again, this is over against the belief of the Roman Catholic Church, and this is not to bash the Roman Catholics. It's to make these distinctions clear and so that you can love your Roman Catholic friends with truth. But again, at the Council of Trent, in response to the doctrine of the Reformers, they issued 30 anathemas. Okay, you can go read this. this is, they've never been repealed. So in other words, if anyone believes these things that they state, let them be eternally condemned. Here's Canon 30. If anyone says, listen, if anyone says that after the grace of justification has been received, to every penitent sinner the guilt is remitted and the debt of eternal punishment is blotted out in such a way that there remains not any debt of temporal punishment to be discharged, either in this world or in the next in purgatory, before the entrance to the kingdom of heaven can be opened, let him be anathema. Did you follow that? I'll read it again. If anyone says 
that after the grace of justification has been received to every penitent sinner, the guilt is remitted and the debt of eternal punishment is blotted out in such a way that there remains not any more debt of temporal punishment to be discharged either in this world or in the next in purgatory before the entrance to heaven is open to him. If that's what you believe, you're damned. That's what they're saying. So to that we respond by clinging to the promise, the claim in Romans 8. We keep reading, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? We are justified forevermore. So, of course we say that. Of course we say, after the grace of justification has been received to every repentant sinner, the guilt is remitted. Yes, the debt of eternal punishment is blotted out in such a way that there is no more need to pay for it. Not in this life. Not in purgatory. So, at the beginning, I said this doctrine is precious and it's powerful and it ought to factor into our lives on a daily basis. We need it. So let's just consider that briefly for a few minutes before we're done here. Remember that little book that we've given out over the last couple months called The Freedom Movement by Michael Reeves? He said this in there. Luther saw that God is not asking us to earn his love and acceptance in any way. God's righteousness is something he shares with us as a gift. Acceptance before God, forgiveness, and peace with him is received by simple faith or trust. Here in the Bible, Luther found, truly is good news. A kind and generous God who does not ask people to make themselves attractive before he loves them, but who loves first. So this is so important because even though we know things in our heads, sometimes in our hearts, in the way that we actually operate, we get it backwards. We are sanctified by justification, in a sense. I'll, I'll clarify this in a minute. Not the other way around. I, I think sometimes we, we oftentimes operate as if we're justified. We're, we only think we're right with God on our good days. Justified by our sanctification. No, it's the other way around. So do you ever feel more acceptable to God on your good days and less acceptable to Him on your bad days? You need to believe this doctrine. You need to remind yourself of what's true. Do you feel more worthy of God's love on your better days and less worthy of it on your bad days? We do not believe in justification by sanctification. We don't have to measure up or merit or maintain God's favor. We don't have to live like we can lose and have to regain our justification. I mean, we know this is true. Like, if you have a child or if you've seen this, like, when a child sins, like, he's in the family. He's not going to get booted from the family for sinning, for disobeying his dad. If the father disciplines the son, it's because he loves him precisely because he is in the family. So he shouldn't read that as, oh, I might be on the bubble here. I'm going to get a pink slip in my the locker in my bedroom or something, you know? No. It's precisely because the father loves the child that he does that. So, we are freely justified by faith in Jesus. And so, do you ever have this happen? You know, you know in Revelation 12, it talks about the devil as the accuser, the accuser of the brothers, brothers and sisters. <laughs> he loves to wag his finger at us and say things Basically to the effect of, you know, you call yourself a Christian? Look at what you've done. You're pathetic. So, again, very practical. We need to believe justification by faith alone. And, again, we'll ask Luther for some help. 
Here's what he said in the face of such accusation from the devil. When the devil throws our sins up to us and declares what we deserve, declares that we deserve death and hell, we ought to speak thus. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? Does this mean that I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means. For I know the one who suffered and made satisfaction in my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Where he is there, I shall be also. And in a sense, we already are with him. We are in him. Or how about this? Do you know how hardwired you and I are to seek the approval and acceptance and smile of those we respect or love or look up to. That's why it gets us in trouble so often. It's because we give way to fear of man, we become people pleasers because we so long for the approval and acceptance of those around us and we fear losing that acceptance and approval, right? So we live insecurely, constantly seeking and responding to the moving target of human approval. What is the solution to that? Justification by faith alone. Because you know what justification by faith alone is? What if you had the ultimate acceptance and approval from the most important person in the universe? What if you had his smile? Do you think you could handle the frowns of so many earthlings? The worst thing that we could ever hear is not some earthly judgment or criticism or whatever from someone around us, even if, again, we rightly respect them or look, you know, long for their acceptance or approval. There's plenty of good ways that that can work out. But the point is the worst thing in the world is not earthly rejection, but cosmic rejection to face the only face that ultimately matters at the end and hear Depart from me, I never knew you. And the best thing that we could ever hear is the cosmic commendation facing the only face that ultimately matters and hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. But the beautiful thing is that approval that cosmic commendation is not meant to be this tentative, out there, maybe, oh, I hope it happens, you know, filling me with insecurity and fear all my life, hoping that I'll be able to do enough to measure up and hear those words. In the reality of justification, not just the doctrine, but the actual reality of what's happening when a person is justified, that future verdict breaks into time and is announced ahead of time by the grace of God. This is my beloved son or daughter. In him, in her, I am well pleased because they are in my son. They're in Christ. And with him, I am well pleased. So by faith, we are in Christ. Our sin was imputed to his account. He paid for it in full on the cross. His righteousness imputed to our account. We're safe and secure and accepted forever. It's that safety. We know who we are. We know whose we are forever that produces life change. That's how we grow. Do you see how we're sanctified by justification, not the other way around? We grow in grace and holiness by grasping and savoring the amazing grace of the gospel, grace of justification. So we're not only justified by the grace of the gospel, we are sanctified by that same grace. And so the poet William Cooper understood this when he wrote, to see the law of Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. Which is why the reformers always made it clear to say this, last point, the faith alone that justifies is never alone. It's no dead faith. It's a living faith that works through love. True faith that justifies works through love. Love, the fulfillment of the law, is the fruit of faith. So remember how fruit is born? The tree makes the fruit. The fruit doesn't make the tree. You see that? So if 
if we think, oh, I need more fruit in my life to prove that I'm... No, no, no. That'd be like, you know, Paul Tripp says, apple nailing, going out to a dead tree and just stapling apples onto... There's no organic change. Those things are just going to rot, land on the ground, and you're still going to get, you know, a dead tree. But the gospel changes at the organic root level. We are changed internally by grace and the fruit is born. So the faith alone that justifies, the grace changes us. And it's never alone. It works through love. So the healthy roots, trusting in Jesus alone, produce the fruit. Fruit doesn't make the tree. The tree makes the fruit. Works don't give life to faith. They are the fruit of the faith that is alive. Works are the effect of genuine faith and right standing with God, not the cause. So William Wilberforce once said, the Christian knows that holiness is not to precede his reconciliation to God and be its cause, but to follow it and be its effect. So if you don't see any fruit, any fruit in your life, you don't tack on some good deeds, you don't run out in fear and try to scramble and do some good works. Instead, you need to trust in Jesus, empty hands of faith, clinging to him alone for justification. And then the fruit, by his grace, begins to grow because you're reconciled to God. You are united with Christ. You are abiding in the vine and you will bear much fruit. When we, by faith, cling to Christ, he changes everything, and the fruit begins to grow and flourish. So may we treasure justification by faith alone, and may Jesus bear his fruit in us and through us as it is worked out in our lives. Let's pray. And we're going to close appropriately by singing the song, Living Faith, because that's the kind of faith we want to have. God, we thank you for this great salvation that is accomplished by you from beginning to end. We are saved by grace through faith. It is not of ourselves so that no one can boast. And so we give you all the praise and glory and thanks for what you have done. And I pray that we would grasp the gospel so clearly and hold fast to it and see its power to shape how we live day in and day out. That we would bear much fruit and that fruit would abound to your glory. So we pray this all in Jesus' precious and powerful name. Amen.